You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today for Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. My name is Jacob Hawk, the host of this podcast, and we are beginning a new series today called Restoration. That word restoration can be used in a variety of contexts. People like to restore old automobiles, or people talk about restoring old buildings or restoring old houses, uh, restoring relationships. Anytime you see that word restore, the goal of restoration of any kind is to get back to the original design. And so biblically speaking, there has been a strong emphasis for hundreds of years to restore biblical interpretation, to get back to reading the Bible in the way that God originally intended for it to be read and seeing in it what God wanted his people to know. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be in this series on the podcast about restoration. And it's been a while since I've had a guest with me on the podcast, but I've asked someone that I know very well, and I know that many of the listeners will know as well, uh, my dad, Danny Hawk. Dad, we're glad to have you with us today. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Dad, you've spent a long time preaching. How many years would you say you've been preaching? Over 40 over 40 and uh, preaching in many different areas. In the last decade, you've been doing interim ministry down in Houston and I guess a little while in Tyler and most recently in Mangum, Oklahoma. Tell us a little bit about Mangum, Oklahoma. Mangum's a small community up in uh, western Oklahoma. Uh, it's a sweet little town, sweet people. Uh, it's a farming community. And uh, it's just a nice little town, good people. And you and Mom have stayed in Dallas. People don't always realize that. You travel every weekend to Mangum. How far is that from Dallas? About a four-hour trip. So you drive each eight, way. eight hours every weekend to go and uh, bless this church. So you obviously love preaching, and you've been in business and the automobile business for many years. How long have you done that? I've done that for quite a few years, too, off and on for 35, 40 years. So you've had a foot, I guess, in two different camps in the church world and in the secular world. But one of your favorite topics, which is why I'm having you on for this series, is uh, restoration. Is that right? That's correct. So when did you begin being interested in this topic of restoration? Many years ago, but I guess I got very interested in it when I was a student at Abilene Christian University uh, back in 
1975, six, right in that time of period, that period of time. And, uh, had a, I was fortunate to have a professor at that time, Dr. Bill Humble, uh, who was probably and probably still is regarded as one of the finest scholars of restoration history that, that, that we have or that we had in that day. And, uh, had him for a professor and he instilled in me a, a real love and interest and hunger for the restoration of the church. And he was a great historian as well. Yes. And wrote a book I know about restoration. I've read that book before. What was the name of that book? Do you remember? The one that's most widely known is called The Story of the Restoration. He did quite a few writings and articles and different things, but uh, the story of the restoration is one that most people are familiar with. Now, I defined restoration just kind of off the cuff at the beginning as taking something back to its original purpose, its original plan. How would you define restoration? Well, just that. It's very simple. is to go back and restore. And in regards, in, in the context of restoration history, restoration movement of the church, uh, that was the plea. Uh, let's be the church that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, it's it's recognizing that the New Testament is a pattern. It's a blueprint for the church, and that we need to go back and be sure that we restore uh, the details of the blueprint to the church. Some of the restoration leaders and, and great pioneers in the movement uh, they made a distinction between reformation and restoration. Uh, many people are familiar with the Reformation movement and studied in public schools and all kinds of history classes as, as we grow up. But the Reformation was a time of going back and, and reforming uh, the Church of England. But the Restoration movement, men like Alexander Campbell and others, would make the point that the church does not need to be reformed. The church needed to be restored. And so there was a distinction. There was a dis difference in the mentality and, and the goals of the restoration opposed to the reformation movement. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to point out. I've heard it, people phrase it this way, that the reformation, you know, wasn't just good. It was great. The problem was they did not go far enough, that they were they were missing um, what Alexander Campbell and others years later would come around and bring to the table more of the restoration going all the way back to the beginning, not just fixing something that was already struggling. Um, a concept built into the restoration, and that's what we're going to do in this first episode. We'll talk more about the restoration movement and the big players in that movement in a different series or different episodes of this series. But in this episode, the first one, uh, we're just kind of defining what restoration is. And I've heard you teach about this uh, many times in my life. And I know that one thing that you bring out from the beginning is establishing the concept of order, uh, that God is a God of order. And since he is a God of order, he expects order to be followed. So let's just start there. Um, how is God a God of, of order? Well, everything about God is a God of organization and order. And uh, to, to realize that and to view that, all you have to do is just look at creation. Uh, if you go to the very beginning of, of the story, 
Uh, you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning. If you go back to the beginning and look at creation story, you realize that everything that we have today uh, is very much an organized world of order. And order doesn't come from disorder. It never does. Order always comes from order. And in the beginning, God spoke into existence the world. That's what scripture teaches us is that he basically, he, he created uh, this world, this universe that we're in out of things that did not exist. And he spoke them into existence. But we remember the creation story in the story of the, of the six days of creation. Of course, God rested on the seventh day, but we start very early in Sunday school classes, vacation Bible classes, and everything else, talking about the six days of creation. And if we go back and really look at how God created the world, we know he spoke it into existence. But if we look at the order of things, day one says that God created light. I'm not going to go back and read all the passages, but this, if you look in the first chapter of Genesis, beginning with verse 3, says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. On day two, beginning with verse six, God spoke into existence again, really the sky and the water. The old translations talk about separating the two firmaments, the sky, the sea, the sky from the, the seas. That was day two. Then day three, beginning with verse nine in Genesis one, God creates dry land and vegetation. So where we have it there in three days, we've got light, then we've got sky and water, then we've got dry land and vegetation. What's interesting, and we don't always put this together, but when you go to day four, it's almost like God starts over again. He's laid the groundwork in those first three days. On day four, he creates light bearers, the sky, the sun, the moon, that absolutely coordinates with what he did on day one with light. Day five, he coordinates with what he did on day two. Day two, he separated the seas from the sky. Well, day five, he makes birds and fish. And then on day six, if you remember on day three, God created the dry land, vegetation. Well, on day six, he put man and beasts on the earth to enjoy the dry land and, and the creation. Of course, he rested on the seventh day. But if you look at it, day one corresponds to day three, day two to day four, five, day three to day six. And God, even in his creation of the world, I would suggest, did it in a very systematic, organized fashion. Yeah, that's always been fascinating to me of how like like you're pointing out what he does on day one is further seen in day four day two and day five day three and day six uh, there is a concept there of all things working uh, together and that's that's continued throughout the bible all the way to first corinthians 14 uh, verse 40 where paul will say that god is a god of order i mean paul says that directly in scripture even after thousands of years have passed since the creation story um, a big conversation, as you alluded to a few moments ago in restoration, is this idea of there being uh, a pattern in the Bible. 
would you say that it's fair to conclude that in today's world, many people mock that idea, what they call patternistic theology, that that's a that's a bad way to read the Bible. They don't think there is a pattern in the Bible. Sure, there's a lot, and, and you know, it's clear why why that's done is if, if you can conclude that there is not a pattern, if there's not a blueprint, uh, then let you do whatever you want to do. That opens the door for everybody's interpretation being as good as anybody else's interpretation on everything, whether it's worship, whether it's a church. Uh, whether it's life or obedience in general, if there's no pattern to follow, uh, then uh, you can just do what you want to do. Of course, in doing that, uh, that creates chaos. I said a while ago, order never comes from disorder. Mm -hmm. It comes from order. And I compare it to uh, a rule book for a ball game, a baseball game, for example. If we didn't have a, a book of rules that everybody, both teams, all the players, all the fans agreed to prior to the opening pitch, you could never get the ball game played. You could never get one completed. If one batter comes up to bat and he's allowed four strikes, and the next batter only gets two strikes, the next batter he gets three strikes, you're going to have nothing but disorder and arguing and fighting and conflict. And you've got to have a rule for everything that happens in baseball, right down to things like balks. I can remember the first time I heard of somebody balking when I was playing Little League Baseball. I had to stop the game, get a rule book to read to see what's the remedy for that. What do you do when that takes place? And it wasn't until somebody found the rule book that was laying around there and read it that we could continue the ball game because if it's open – to interpretation by everybody in all kinds of different ways, you can have no agreement. You can get nothing accomplished. And life's that way. Church is that way. Worship is that way. Is if we don't have a pattern, if we don't have a blue book, blueprint for what we're doing, then there's no way we can ever not only satisfy ourselves, but more importantly, satisfy God. That's a good illustration with baseball. And as you were talking about that, I actually heard a teacher not too long ago talk about how the church has evolved over time and with every evolution there is improvement. And um, I was thinking about, I've been a lifelong Rangers fan. The Rangers, I guess, are now in their third stadium, going back to the original stadium in 1972 that was really just kind of a shell of a ballpark. And then the ballpark in Arlington when it opened in 94. And then I guess three seasons ago, the new Globe Life Field opened. Um, you know, it's indoor with the retractable roof. And rather than sitting outside at the ballpark in Arlington and baking in the sun, you can sit inside and enjoy baseball in a 72-degree temperature. But with each change of the stadium, each stadium has improved from the previous stadium. But it's interesting to note that in each stadium, the bases are still 90 feet apart from each other. Right. The mound is still 60 feet, 6 inches from home plate. There are still three outs in an inning. There are still nine innings in a game, uh, three strikes, and you sit down. Those things haven't changed because those are the things that help govern uh, baseball. And back to your analogy, God has given us rules in both covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, to help govern life. And he expects them to be followed even when 
times may improve and in many ways um, get worse as we are seeing in our world today. So one, one question people often ask is, okay, if there is such a thing as a pattern in the Bible, um, how do we know God expects us to follow it? Because the Bible will never say word for word, here's the pattern, but you read it to see what the pattern is. So how, how do we know that God expects us to follow a pattern? Well, I think one of the first things that we can see is go back and read the Bible and look at the Word itself. And we'll see most more of this in a specific sense in the Old Testament. Uh, as, as the world and time and events began to unfold. Uh, very early, Genesis chapter 6, just right after creation, uh, as far as the record goes, uh, we see a time when God looks down on the earth and he's very unhappy. And the reason he's unhappy is because of wickedness, the wickedness of, of man and woman and all the sins that they're committing, and he's pretty disgusted with it. In fact, he says he's going to destroy what he had built. And it appears that he, uh, in essence, even regrets making man because of the, the heart. And the, the Bible says that not only was man doing evil things, but his heart was upon evil continually. That's all we thought about. But we read in Genesis 6 of a godly man by the name of Noah, never School-age kid knows about Noah, and if you get out in the northern Kentucky area, you need to go through Noah's Ark that's out there. I had the privilege and opportunity to do that recently, and it's it's very, very interesting, very neat to go through. But as you look at that Ark out there in, in Kentucky, you realize <coughs> just how big of a structure it really was, how big a boat God told Noah to build. And Genesis 6 gives the specifications. If we want to talk about a pattern or a blueprint, we have one for that ark. And God tells Noah what kind of wood to use, how many rooms there needs to be in it, needs to be three stories, how long it needs to be, how tall, how wide. All of this, all the specificity is given in great detail in Genesis chapter 6, beginning verse 14. Now, it sounds specific it is specific and it makes as it begs the question of okay how much of that does noah have to follow does he really have to make it three stories long tall or uh, high does he really have to make it that long really have to use the gopher wood or can he substitute something can he do something different well all we know is that the scripture says in genesis 7 verse 5 that noah did all that God commanded him, not part, not a whole lot of, not some of. He did everything, all that God commanded him to do. And it's very, very obvious to the reader as you go through that, that's what pleased God. And we can speculate. We can wonder, what if Noah had done it differently? You know, I, my guess is the boat probably wouldn't have floated, probably wouldn't have worked, because the Bible makes such a point that God was pleased and that Noah and his wife and three sons, three daughter-in-laws, they were saved because of Noah's complete obedience of what God had told him to do. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the go-to points for restoration is how Noah handled the ark. And 
you know, I think it is profound that nowhere in Scripture do we hear God telling Noah, God, or, or Noah, as long as you love me and build the ark the way you want to build it, it's going to work. Um, that's not the message that God gives Noah. Uh, Noah follows God preci- precisely the way that God asked him to, and that's so different than what you hear people say today is, well, I love God, and God knows that I love him, and God knows my heart, so as long as I do it this way, out of love and sincerity, God's going to accept it. That's not that's not the message of Noah and the ark at all. Um, we talk about another story in the Old Testament, um, the story of Uzzah. I know you mentioned that one as well, about when they were transporting uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and that didn't work out too well for Uzzah. Tell us a little bit about Uzzah and how you've used that story in the past. Well, Uzzah is an interesting <laughs> fellow, an interesting story about him. We, we don't know a lot about Uzzah other than he was a, a man that seemed like he, he just wanted to make sure uh, God's property, God's Ark of the Covenant, the, the special, special uh, uh, box that was built in a special way and, and uh, held the special articles that God uh, saw so sacred. He just wanted to make sure it was taken care of. But what took place was uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David calls for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought back to Jerusalem. The Ark had been in quarantine for 20 years. It hadn't been in Jerusalem where it needed to be. I won't go into all the reasons for that, but there was a a return of the Ark. That's what was taking place here, bringing it back to uh, Jerusalem, the holy city. But what was happening was that they were hot. the Israelites, the Israelites at this point, bringing the ark back, they were hauling the ark on what the scripture says, a brand new ox cart. And the oxen pulling the cart, uh, they began to stumble, and the, looked like the ark was going to fall off. And so Uzzah was standing there close to the ark, close to the cart, hauling the ark, and he just reached out and steadied it so it wouldn't fall off the cart. And when he did, Scripture says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And basically, God just zapped him right there, and he died. Now, we look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem quite right. Why would he get killed? Why would God be mad and zap him when he was trying to protect the ark? Well, that's where we have to do a little deeper dive and ask a few more questions and realize that the Israelites were transporting the Ark of the Covenant unscripturally. The Ark, uh, there were specific commands and specific uh, ways that the Ark was to be carried, and it was only to be carried by poles. They had uh, uh, rings on the side of the, of the uh, Ark. The rings were made of gold. There were four of them. And Exodus 25 had said that you're supposed to take two poles made of special wood covered with gold, slide them through these rings, and, and uh, the, that's how the ark was to be carried. And so they were carrying, transporting the ark in an unscriptural 
fashion. Now, why were they doing it this way? It's because this is the way the Philistines had hauled it. When the Philistines had it in their possession, they moved the ark from place to place on an ox cart. And so evidently God's people, the Israelites, had seen that, decided, well, that's a pretty good way to move the ark. That looks okay. That's the way we're going to do it. And it looks like the scripture makes a point that it was a brand new ox cart. It would appear that there's some respect going into the moving of it by the Israelites. But what there is not present is that they're not following God's commands, God's blueprint of how they're supposed to move it. And so that's why Uzzah was killed when he tried to steady it, is because God was unhappy the way they were moving the ark. So uh, also the command was there. No one was to touch the ark of the covenant. And that's usually what we say is because he touched it. But I think it goes deeper. It's the way they were transporting it. And I think it's an important point that you made. You know, the text doesn't say this, but if you do a little bit of study of the history and the culture of the day, that was how the Philistines had carried the Ark of the Covenant. They were getting away from God's plan for transportation and adopting a worldly model that looked to them like it made more sense, was more convenient, it was probably quicker, and uh, God was clearly not pleased with the decisions they had made. Okay, so we've talked about Noah, we've talked about Uzzah, another story that people often turn to is Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 that offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. No one really knows what that means. All we know is that it was not what God had asked them to do. So there's a precedent set in the Old Testament that if you obey God, as Noah did, that leads to life. If you disobey God, um, that not only metaphorically, but in some cases literally with Uzzah and Nadab and Abihu, it leads to death. We get over to the New Testament, and the argument is so often portrayed and offered, well, God operates differently in the New Testament. God is not as um, radical or demanding, so God's not going to have those same expectations. So the next question, um, is there a pattern in the New Testament that we're supposed to look for in the church today? Yes, I think there most definitely is. And I think we see that all the way through the New Testament as well, maybe in a little bit different way. But if I, before I jump to that, if we're going to talk about work, let me do one other thing before we leave the Old Testament, and that's talk about the tabernacle. Okay. Because the tabernacle, as you well know, was God's uh, residence for worship in the Old Testament. As they were moving from place to place, it was a temporary house of worship. But going all the way back to Exodus 25, <coughs> when God prescribes uh, the need for the tabernacle. I'm going to read this passage if I can. It's a short passage, but in Exodus 25, beginning with verse 8, God is talking to Moses, and he says, Let them, his people, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern. And there's the word. The pattern of the tabernacle. All of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then Moses, when he's talking to the people, he stresses that, and even the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, looks back, and the Hebrew writer says this. He says, For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything 
according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So there you have the tabernacle spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament by the Hebrew writer saying that God was interested in the pattern and everything needed to be done according to the pattern. Now the New Testament, when we get over to the New Testament, we have a whole lot of, of other examples that we can look at. But we're correct many times when we say we don't seem to have the same uh, details that we have in the Old Testament. We don't have examples of God just reaching down and zapping somebody for touching the Ark of the Covenant. Now, as I say that, we do I do think immediately of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament and in the New Testament worship when it came to the giving of, of their money. And we have that story where God was very unhappy with uh, the, what Scripture says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And both of them, we see, were immediately zapped, killed, like in the Old Testament. But when we move from that and move into uh, the New Testament church and the pattern that we see for the church and the worship that we see for the church, we don't see quite as many uh, situations where God just reaches down and handles things right there uh, in, in that moment. I'm suggesting that as we look at the New Testament, we realize that the New Testament, I guess I'm saying as we look at the Bible as a whole, that the Old Testament, I believe, provides us with a lot of specific stories, specific examples, specific details to where we can see how God thinks and how God's mind works. Where many times we get over to the New Testament, we simply see the principle stated. When it comes to worship, when it comes to the church, when it comes to our lives in the New Testament, God simply tells us what he wants and I believe he expects us to know his mind from stories that we have seen and read in the Old Testament. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says these things are written to us, these things we have uh, as examples and as instruction to us as we live out our New Testament lives. So just for a matter of clarification, you do think there is a pattern in the New Testament. I do. Though it's a different type of pattern of the Old Testament, there is still this noticeable trend and behavior of God where he specifies, here's what I want, and this is who I want you to be. And we see that the early church, for the most part, I mean, we are all faulty and human and make mistakes, but for the most part, the early church did that. They did that or they should be doing that. And there were times that letters were written to churches, and Paul, Peter, John had to talk to the churches because they were doing things incorrectly. And as they would talk to them, you know, Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, and bless their heart, there were so many problems that the church at Corinth had. But in all of that disorder that they seemed to be having, that's where Paul uh, told them, and tells us that all things ought to be done decently and in order. Mm -hmm. Now, there's not a specified list, a specific list, 
for what that order might be, but yet there is if we'll read through the New Testament and we look at the examples and the practices that we see. But Paul was one of the things he was telling them is we got to have order here. We got to have uh, a systematic way of doing things. And as you read different books and <laughs> different passages of the New Testament, um, it begins to take more form and become more clear as to what God wants for his for his church. Leadership of the church really isn't dealt with in Corinthians, but we see in the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, Paul really spends a lot of time there talking about what leadership should look like and what elders should look like, what deacons should look like, who they should be, how they should live. Um, I remember sitting with you in home Bible studies when we would have people into our house growing up and one illustration you would use, it always made a lot of sense to me, is if we went to a large shopping mall back in the day when <laughs> malls were busy, but you asked someone to go find your car on the parking lot and you said, hey, I need you to go find my car. And that's all you told them. You know, there's thousands of cars at Stonebriar or North Park Mall. They're going to have a hard time finding your car. But if you said, okay, well, I need you to go find my car, and then you said it's a blue one, well, that knocks out all the others that aren't blue. And then you say, well, it's a Honda. That knocks out all the cars that aren't Hondas. And here's the license plate. Well, that limits all those Hondas down to one Honda. And then you give them a key fob where they can push it and hear the noise. Well, that limits it even more that as you read the New Testament and start very carefully trying to notice what God wants. He doesn't leave you clueless. He doesn't leave you with just go find my car. He gives you instructions, getting you all the way down from the type of car down to the license plate, uh, down to the key fob. Do you still believe that to yes, be the case? Very much. I'm glad you remembered that because <laughs> I, I think it. that's exactly what the New Testament does is we look back and we see the various churches, congregations in the New Testament, and if we observe their practices, we see that they uh, are similar in what they do. And uh, on the, what, what day do they meet on? What do they do when they come together? Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, when he writes to Timothy and to Titus, telling them to set the churches in order, one of the things he says is, I want you to do these things in every church, mm -hmm. not just here and there, but in every church. And so, yes, as, as we look back and we start seeing that, and that's what the New Testament is for the church today. It is a blueprint. It is a pattern. It is a description. Mm -hmm. It describes the church we read about. Mm -hmm. And as we read the description, it's up to us to go uh, find that church, emulate that church and it's a continuing thing the restoration story the restoration movement is not a one-time uh, period of history it is mm -hmm. a continuing process that we will continue to uh, to do as long as we're drawing a breath and we'll continue to talk about this more as the series goes series goes on and we get into more specific matters of the church but in that same idea of making the church recognizable, that's what we're talking about, is Paul said, I want this to be done in all the churches so that there's uniformity and um, people could know if they went to church at Philippi, it was going to be very similar to what church would have been like in Ephesus or Corinth. Obviously, different cities, different customs, different cultures, but the big matters were the same. A lot of people don't realize, Dad, and I know, I know you do, but when we talk about a cappella singing, 
that that word acapella does not mean without without instruments. <laughs> it means as in the church, as in the manner of the church uh-huh. in the in the first century. People recognized this group of Christians. This is how they worship. This is how worship was done in the manner of the church. This is their custom. That word does not mean we don't have guitars or pianos or a band. That means this is how the church sang. This is what they did. And so even from a worldly, secular perspective, there was recognition of who the church was and how they worshiped shortly um, after the death of Christ in the beginning of the church. Any last comments you'd like to make today on this one? No, just that's a... It's there's a whole lot here. It's like both of us are very familiar with Robert Oglesby. One of the things that Robert says about a situation like this is it's it's sort of like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose. Mm-hmm. There's just so much coming at you, so so uh, such a strong force that it's hard to grab hold of it sometimes. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a very very fundamental way of thinking that the church uh, has a blueprint. Mm-hmm. It has a pattern. And I use the two words, and I'll jump. I know we're winding down here, but uh, the pattern, if someone likes to sew or, or that they understand that what a pattern is, that a, a dress or a garment's not going to come out right if you don't cut pretty close to the pattern, cut along the lines. If you build things near a builder or something, you realize a, a house or any kind of structure is just not going to come out and be the way it's supposed to be if you don't build it according to the specifications of the blueprint. And that's what the, the church today and our lives today as Christians, they're just not going to be what God wants them to be if we don't follow the blueprint. That's right. Well, as you said, there is a lot of information here, and so we're going to spread this out over five different episodes. This first episode today in the series is just talking a little bit about what is restoration. In the next episode, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about why why it's so important and how we kind of see the restoration movement begin to take form uh, in America in the 1800s. But, Dad, thank you for giving us some of your time today, and thank you to all who have listen to this we pray that uh, this has been encouraging to you or maybe piqued your interest and as always if you have more that you would like to discuss about this i want to give you my email address jacob at pressingcrest.org would love to dialogue with you and learn from you and hear your perceptions what you have to say as well as always i encourage you to keep your eyes on heaven and i look forward to talking with you next time okay.